0: Barbecue likes me. (laughs) Well, hello. What what a great weekend. What a wonderful uh, place to be able to begin a message with somebody saying, let's talk about mission. Let's talk about what it means to be on a track that changes lives. This weekend is part two of Are We There Yet? Mark chapter 13 is an interesting uh, place in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has come into the city uh, on what we call Palm Sunday. He's now a couple of days in, and uh, some fascinating things are happening. But let me just look at that question just a moment. Are we there yet is a kid's question. That's the question (laughs) that you get with little kids, like every time you get in the car, you just pull out of your driveway and say, well, are we close? No, we're just out of the driveway. I, we, when Ruth and I lived in Illinois, we would take a biannual trip. Every two years at summertime, we'd go see our families in California and we'd leave on a sunny night at nine o'clock and drive all through the night with these four kids in the back of the station wagon. For those of you who are younger, station wagon was a different kind of car. And, and we just, <laughs> We would drive all through the night and get to Shamrock, Texas at three in the afternoon and put the kids in the pool and try to stay awake to watch them. And uh, it was just, but, but it was a long trip and it was always, are we there? And we didn't have video games. We didn't have any of that stuff. And so you're just, you know, swatting at it. We didn't have seat belts. And you, some of you older people remember, I've talked about this before you're, you throw your shoulder out trying to get them. They're back there fighting and stuff like that. I said that once and a guy came to me afterwards and he said, you know, we learned that if you tap the brakes, it brings the kids back into play, (laughs) you know. Are you, are we there yet? And we would say, well, it's soon. Keep looking. Just look at, look at the cows, look out there. That's how it is. Jesus has come into the city as king. He'll be crucified within a week, but he's staying outside of town, so he keeps going in and out of the city. And Mark 13 begins. With as Jesus was leaving the temple, he had just taught in the temple courts, and he, he was heading toward the cross, if I can use that extension, but he goes across the valley to Olivet, and this is called the Olivet Discourse, and I'm going to stop there and say, if you want to really have an understanding of this passage, you need to go online and watch Pastor Rob Coles from last week. If you were not here last week, go online and watch and listen, because the... The, um, the thoroughness with which Rob presented these ideas is uh, was really good, really profound, and I encourage you to do that. So the disciples, essentially, are kids on a trip with Jesus, and Jesus is describing this kingdom journey. He has um, ex- explained to them a lot of things along the way. We're at the end of a three-year trip. He's explained to them a lot of things. And he comes he's coming to the end in theology they called the end eschatology it's from this word eschaton which means the end of things and the end of things is out there i mean either i'll come to an end we say well both died well not really my body fell off both keeps going i get a new body i'm you know i'm not anxious for that to happen but it's going to happen somewhere along the line but this text suggests there's an end of all things and cartoonists have great fun with the end of all things like this one the end is near sorry for the inconvenience is that what it says up there yeah how about this one the end is near and the next guy is the end you know i was brought up in a church environment where the second coming of jesus was talked about every sunday night So I was ready like every Sunday night. Whatever I'd done during the week, you know, I said, God, keep short accounts. I was was all over that. But it also makes you nervous when you're a kid and you're saying, you know, don't, please don't come till after the honeymoon and please don't, you know, all that kind of, you're thinking that kind of stuff. Some of you are looking at me saying, yeah, I didn't. No, I'm telling you, that's what I was thinking. Jesus, however, isn't joking. He tells us what's coming. When Jesus brings these things up, The disciples, these four particularly, the two sets of brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew, have two questions. When and what's the sign of that? Listen to how this reads, and I'm just gonna start in the middle of the the passage. In Mark 13, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world. You can read this whole text from verse 1 to verse 37, and it's this mix of what's going to happen soon. And Rob talked about that last 40 years down the road, essentially, that whole city is destroyed. But it has this hint, this, this glimpse of the end of time, and it's all mixed together. And when you read it, I read that and I say, so what do we think when you read something like this? And what I think is, could this be true? I mean, could what he's talking about be true? That's sort of my natural instinct. Point one. The key question of life, you can just write this down in your bulletins if you have them there, the key question of life is what is true? What I do with the information in Mark 13 comes down to this, do I believe him? Do I believe Jesus? Do these disciples believe Jesus? Now the first layer, as I've just mentioned, happens within 40 years. The city is destroyed and the temple is taken stone from stone, there's nothing left there. But Jesus is is predicting things. And the things predicted 700 years before his birth came true. The things that, that are said in the Old Testament about a virgin birth and about the Messiah coming and all of that, that came true. Jesus is talking to them about the future and he is suggesting, he is saying to them, Look because these things are going to happen. I've told you about my friend Charlie White who was dying. He was in hospice care. He was a former Navy sub captain and I walked in just a few days before he died and he said, "Dick, tell me tell me that piece about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Like what does that mean?" And I said, "Charlie, I don't I think it means to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord." And I said, but, but see, I haven't done that part yet, so I don't know how that works. But the other things that he says, the other things that are said in Scripture have proven to be true, so I have every reason to believe that that piece is true. So when Jesus predicts things, it's based on a whole line of predictions throughout history, but it's challenging for us because prophetic passages use poetic language they it's it's just a challenge Ruth and I like driving toward the mountains at dusk from out east of here and there's that time in the evening when the mountains turn purple and brown and blues and blacks and the ranges the various they all sort of blend together and it looks like they're just one range when in fact there are miles and miles between sets of mountains and prophecy is like that when you look at it, it jams all the things up a lot of times, and we think it's all happening at the same time. When in fact, it's oftentimes different, and I think this is one of those passages. Point two, who I believe, so it's, it's important. Do I believe Jesus in this? Who I believe determines what I believe. Who I believe determines what I believe. When I was a kid in the 50s, the newscasters who were big in that day, you only had like two or three channels on a black-and-white TV, but the newscasters who were big were Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. Anybody remember Chet Huntley and David Brinkley? And they were, they were like NBC guys, and then Douglas Edwards was the CBS guy, and I always watched Douglas Edwards. And years later, I was, I was giving the invocation at a college and Douglas Edwards was the speaker. And I just went to him and said, Mr. Edwards, I just want you to know that I know a lot of people like Chet and Dave, but you're my guy. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, my son. You know, it was very cool. It was a good, was a good moment. But who is it that I believe? You know, you turn on the TV and it says, the most trusted network in television. So, like, are you believing Diane Sawyer or Brian Williams or Joe Klein or The Drudge Report or George Will or Char- Charlie Rose or Rachel Mads? Who you believe? Maybe it's a sports hero that I'm believing or a music icon. Or a movie celebrity from which i get my beliefs that we live in a culture that spins us six ways from sunday who do we believe more than that we live in a culture where information has been detached from people so you look on your ipad or your iphone and you're getting all this information from all these sources and and you don't know where it's coming from this generation from 1985 on, the younger generation, are the first generation in the history of the world who have not had to go to an authority figure for information. All they do is check it out on Wikipedia. And I say to young people all across the country, please do not use Wikipedia as your true north. Please don't, because anybody can change that. But Jesus tells them what's going to happen, and then he gives them direction. Listen to some of the direction he gives and I'm just going to read a few things. This is Mark 13, 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Mark 13, 9. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Mark 13, 21, 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Mark 13, 32, 33, be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come. Mark 13, 35, therefore keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Mark 13, 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. In this short passage, he says watch or look or keep your eyes open like half a dozen times. So the direction he's giving them is be alert, keep your eyes open, guard yourself, be aware of what's going on, and falsehood will be one of the markers of the end times. Falsehood, false messiahs, false prophets, false information, lots of false messiahs in Jesus' day, but this is a guy coming down the road with three guys hanging out with him saying, I'm the guy, and so forth. But today, it's a totally different range of false prophets. Come, come here, they say, come here, do this, do that. You'll like this. It's so important to know what's true and not believe falsehoods. Because, point three, what I believe determines what I do. What I believe determines what I do. What's happening on the Mount of Olives with Jesus is a clash of cultures. Jesus is sitting with his key followers looking at this magnificent building that within 40 years will be just rubble, and he says all that represents, that whole system, the whole sacrificial system will be gone, and it'll be horrific, and the kingdom culture is showing up. So 2,000 years later, here we are, and we're still grappling with how does the kingdom culture impact the culture I live in. Culture is defined as a set of beliefs or practices or a grouping of people. So we talk about the drug culture or the, you know, in in D.C., where we spent so many years, you had the Pentagon culture and they spoke a language, you had the State Department culture and the White House culture and the Capitol Hill culture. In high school, you have the jock culture and you have the music culture and you have the arts culture and, you know, you have your little subgroups. But the big three things that that we need to keep our eyes open for, at least these three, the things that we wrestle with oftentimes are money, power, and sex. Our culture often says about money, get it and keep it. Doesn't always say that, but a lot of times it says, get it and keep it. And kingdom culture comes along and says, share it, give it. Our culture says about power, get it and keep it. And the kingdom comes along and says, serve, lay it down, lay your life down. That's a very different kind of power. Whenever we find generosity and service, it's a kingdom theme. And sex, that's much deeper than money or power. And one thing that is being sold to us in our culture and globally as currency is sex. It's used to sell everything from cappuccinos to cars. Well, I, I'm going to go grandpa for five minutes here. Is that okay? Well, even if it isn't, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go grandpa for five minutes. You say, hey, we're not going to get the grandpa sex talk, are we? Yeah, we are. Our, uh, our girls when they were teenagers, they'd get in the car, I'm taking them to school and I'd say, have, have I mentioned to you? And they said, "Dad, we're not gonna get the sex talk, are we? I said, yeah, you are. And I said, you guys are different than girls and if you wear it tight or high or low or cut, would, you know, we respond to that. That's how guys are. They respond by sight to these things and it's, it's like a trout with a lure and we, whatever, we, just, we go for it. And the problem is that's the level of the relationship you'll get if you do that. And so I'd give them that talk Some of you are saying, oh, wow, he's going to talk about sex. And some of you are saying, wow, he's going to talk about sex. <laughs> I'd like you to think with me. And just for the record, sex is not in the Olivet Discourse. But being aware of your world and being on guard is absolutely, in terms of falsity, is absolutely at the heart of the Olivet Discourse. Don't follow rabbit trails that take you away from life. I'd like you to think with me. In five minutes, I'm not going to give you a lot of answers, but I just like, I'm a grandfather. We currently are staying at a home with three grandchildren. And I look at them and I see the inundation of information and stuff and all of that. And I'm saying, what can I do as a grandpa? Well, first, first of all, sex is God's idea, isn't it? I mean, like right in Genesis, male and female, he made them. They're made for each other. That's what a marriage is, that male and female. They're right there. And, and early on when you're a kid, curiosity kicks in. Um, our oldest daughter, who's now got four of her own, when she was four, she said, Daddy, well, I want to read the Bible. She learned to read. I, I said, she said, where should I start? I said, I just start at the front, you know. She started at the front couple of weeks in Ruth is at the sink doing dishes and she walks up behind Ruth my wife and says uh, <coughs> mommy I've, I've been reading in Genesis and I, I've come to that place where Sodom and Gomorrah and um, Lot everybody's killed and Lot and his three daughters go in the mountains and, and they get him drunk and they lay with and you say why are you saying well it's the Bible see the Bible doesn't shy away from these things. And they got him drunk and, and they became pregnant. And she said, how did that happen? She's four. And Ruth is at the sink and she's going. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, why don't you ask your daddy when he comes home? <laughs> or you read the song of Solomon. It's very specific. You read chapter four and it says, you know, it's, it's poetic language. It's old school. language, But it says, you know, my darling, my love, your eyes are like doves behind your lids and and your hair looks like goats coming down from Gilead, and your neck is like shields, and your twin breasts are like fawn among the... And you read that, and he, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, but the, the language isn't great. I mean, like, if you turn to your girl and said, you know, you look like you have bird's eyes and the goats coming down across, the, you know, that's not, <laughs> it's not gonna go anywhere. But God designed us as sexual beings, and his deal is he wants us to be whole. We live in a culture where that's not the case. We live in a culture where a lot of young people believe that God orders and watches over things on the one hand to solve problems, but on the main to make me happy. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We talked about it on a Wednesday night some years ago. The goal is not to be happy. That's the wrong goal. The goal is to be whole. The enemy wants us to be fractured and compartmentalized and nowhere more evident than the arena of sexuality. Let me just make this one point. If you hear nothing else about this illustration, hear this one point. There is a lie at the heart of our culture that is so saturated with sexual stuff. And that is that the enemy wants us to believe that sex is body. That's not connected to emotion or spirit. It's not a deep part of me, and if body is not part of my person, then all bets are off. Physicians don't believe that. Physicians believe it's all connected. Social workers don't believe that. They deal with the fallout. They understand how that works. A casual culture, sexually, where lines are blurred and absolutes are dismissed at almost every level. is is what our children and grandchildren are finding themselves in. It is so casual, and I talk to lots of university students, it's so casual that it's like, so shall we have a double latte or shall we go to bed? Casual non-married sex promises what it cannot produce. It suggests intimacy but leaves me exposed. It takes away wholeness. What about purity? We're sort of schizophrenic about purity. Our culture is obsessed with purity in water, in food, in air, in all kinds of things. How about purity in me? What about a pure me? First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. There's a pivotal story in this church called the Nikki story an exotic dancer came to Jesus and she called Pastor Derry and she said, I read through that book I got on Sunday, the New Testament, and I read this part where it was, uh, it says that my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you read that part, Pastor? Have you read that? He said, yeah, I have. He said, do you believe that? He said, yeah, I do. She said, if that's true, then I probably shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But she said, I'm doing it because I need the money and, but this other guy in Matthew says that if I, that if I trust him, he takes care of the lilies of the field and he'll take care of me. My person is integrated, I'm interconnected. And to give oneself to another in the proper covenantal relationship is amazing. The power is in the vulnerability. I have a, a friend, 31 years old, been married three years, and I, I said, Jeremy, I'm gonna talk about this. Give me your best thought. And he said, If it were not for the built-in drive and intense pleasure, we might never on our own be willing to be that vulnerable with another human being. It's about vulnerability. Our sexuality is is our person, it's a sacred trust, it's a treasure. It's right next to spirit. The war happens here in the four and a half inches between my ears. Huge war goes on between these ears. Sometimes there's pain. Sometimes there's tension, sometimes there's self-pity that fuels all kinds of actions. And the temptation can be huge, and a culture fuels it. They say, it's okay, you just do whatever you want with your body. If what you do with your body doesn't make a difference, it doesn't make you free. A friend of mine says it makes you meaningless because my body is my person. I just want to say this to young people. You're designed for greatness. You're designed for power. You're designed for purity. Don't let the common message suck you in. I know at school, if you're not sexually active, you're weird. I get that. I understand that. That's an unbelievable place to be. But I want you to know that there are people in this congregation who pray for you. I want you to know that there are people in this place who say, we are going to stand with you because the challenge is huge. Do not give away a piece of your person at a time. Some of us have experienced lots of things. Many, many of us have. This is not about what has happened. You can't change a minute of what's happened. We serve a God who says, I'll take care of that. Let me take care of that by my blood. We've already celebrated that tonight. But going forward, going forward, I beg you as a grandpa, as a friend, do not settle for less. You are worth more. Do not settle for less. I love what J.B. Phillips said. The pastor in London, after the war, he paraphrased Scripture, and he said it this way, Romans 12, 1 and 3, 1 and 2, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. I believe this generation of young people can change the entire world. I believe this generation of young people have more options, more possibilities, more packaging that's powerful than any time in the history of the world. And if we will lift their arms up, if we will stand with them and say, let us walk with you in this, I believe that almost anything can happen that's positive. So what's true? Who do we believe? What do we believe? John, the eighth chapter, says it this way. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 2 Timothy 1, 11 and 12 says, and of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. I know whom I believed. I, I know what I believe. I may may not know everything I'm going to believe, but if I start with Jesus, if I start with wanting to be his person, if I start with wanting to be whole, that's a foundation that makes for a great life. We're called to look, to be aware, to be on guard, and to look for the second coming of Jesus. There'll come a day when the tension and ambiguity is gone. When he returns the prophecies of his coming the first time were true i have every reason to believe the prophecy of his coming the second time is true so let's rejoice in that the kingdom is already but it's not yet and when we choose to follow jesus we move from death to life death with a big d and a small l that's where i am when i come into jesus i get death with a small d and life with a big l that's how that works listen to listen to how paul says it in First Thessalonians, he hints at it in, it is hinted at, if you will, I think, in Mark 13. Listen to how Paul says it. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the the Lord's own word, we will tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Some of us are in tremendous tension. Some of us are going through horrific things. Some of us are feeling the weight of the world on our shoulders. And it used to be that believers would greet each other with the Greek word, "Maranatha," the Lord comes. It was so intense back in their day. That's where they started. The Lord's coming. And so here I am. I'm in the midst of this. Our kids are fighting these battles on every hand for their minds and their hearts and in their schools and in their culture trying to figure out is it Hollywood or Bollywood or do I believe this guy or that guy? And, and I believe that when we watch out for what's around us but also watch for the coming of the Lord, that's the instruction of Mark the 13th chapter. As you age... The body I was talking about, it uh, moves around. (laughs) We try to get it back, and it's pretty much a losing battle. But when I meet real old people, sometimes I find them so alive in Jesus because their spirits, they don't have some of the issues they had before, and their spirits seem more connected to Jesus. My mom was 93. When uh, my sister called and said, <clears throat> what do we get mom for her 93rd birthday? She was coming up on 93. And I, uh, I said, you know, what do you, what do you get somebody who's 93? They, they give it back or they forgot where they left it. or what, I mean, what do you, do? you know, my mom was like that. So I said, take her to a nice dinner at a nice place. And she said, I'm going to get my cousins and we're going to take her to high tea at the Ritz-Carlton in Dana Point, California. They walked in, a guy playing a big Steinway, you know, there in the lounge. And one of my cousins went over, because my mom was a pianist, and said, do you ever let anybody else play? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, this young lady here, this is her 93rd birthday, and if you took a break, she'd be great, you know. A few minutes later, he said, ma'am, you're on. They took her over, sat her down, My mom was an excellent pianist, had a great voice at 93. Some of you remember the clip I played at her 90th birthday. And she started to play show tunes. And then she morphed into hymns. And then she threw her head back and she started to sing an old camp meeting song. There's going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. And oh, I want to see you over there way beyond the sky. What singing there will be never heard by mortal here. What glory is it I do declare. For God's own Son will be the leading one in that meeting in the air. And by that time, patrons had gathered round the piano. She was just singing with her eyes shut, and my sister and my cousins were standing over there bawling. But there is something that happens when somebody has an authentic longing in their hearts anticipating a day when all the stuff is gone in all of our affluence and all of the stuff we need never to forget that there will come a day when all this is done and whatever happens next it's better that's how it is would you bow your hearts with me just in this quiet moment I'm going to I'm going to ask you to do something that I've I've never asked before, and it's this. If you are a grandparent here, I think we grandparents have a unique possibility with grandchildren. If you're a grandparent here, and you'd like to stand in proxy for your grandchildren, believing God for them, I'd just like you to stand up where you are. Stand up. I'm going to pray. Father, we stand for grandchildren around the world. Guard their hearts. Let them have whole minds. Don't let the enemy of their souls have his way to help them believe something that's absolutely patently untrue. We seek your face this night knowing that you love our grandchildren more than we do. Thank you, Lord, for this moment. I pray your blessing and anointing on these grandparents that when they're with their grandkids, that there will be moments of discussion. Whole days full of loving, powerful times of being able to engage with them. Thank you, Lord, for the generations that are to come and that have already come. We stand in their behalf. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Yes, there is. Can you say amen to that? Our prayer team is coming tonight. There are some of us here who have faced things this week that we never dreamed we'd have to face. But there are folks here who care about you and about that, and they'd like to have a moment or a time prayer with you if you if you'd like to come if you're here and you say you know Nick, like I've never heard anything about Jesus really but I'm fascinated I've you know I don't get all that stuff about the coming back and but I'm fascinated and I'd like to talk to somebody about that I mean I just like some little you come on down to the front too. just take a moment before you leave we'll be right here now for the benediction as we leave this place May we walk away with eyes wide open, not guessing about who we believe in, not guessing about is there a place to stand in a situation that's just a quagmire too often. May we walk from this place knowing that the creator of of the universe holds us in the palm of his hand and he's never going to let us go. Let's do that. God bless you. Go in His grace.